You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word, which we know is active and living. I pray that right now, through your Holy Spirit, that you would bring healing. Where we need healing, that you would grant repentance, where there needs to be repentance, um, that we would trust you more Jesus as the perfect ruler the perfect king that we all desperately need and it's in Jesus' name I do pray and ask these things amen you may be seated well earlier this year I turned 40 years old uh that was a little dramatic but uh to commemorate this milestone I made a playlist that consisted of my top 40 songs of all time. 40 songs, 40 years. Uh, and at the top of the list, above all others, believe it or not, it was not a song by Oasis, though it was close, or The Verve, or Dashboard Confessional, or uh, there wasn't even, uh, it wasn't even a song by Mariah Carey, though two of her songs did make the top 40. Just want to b- confess that to you. One of them not even made the top 10. Um, at the top of my list of my top 40 songs of all time was a quintessential pop song from the 1980s. Everybody Wants to Rule the World by the British rock duo Tears for Fears. I think we have a picture of them. There they are. Look at those guys. How could you not have an incredible band with faces like that? Anybody, everybody here know that song, Everybody Wants to won't Rule the World? I, I would play it for you, but we can't. We'd get knocked off air because of copyright uh, issues. It's a fantastic song that I think really epitomizes the 1980s. It has one of the catchiest hooks of all time. And uh, when asked what the song was about, Tears for Fears guitarist Roland Orzabel said, and I quote, Everybody Wants to Rule the World is a song that is meant to remind us that the human desire for power and control is ultimately destructive and leads to chaos. In other words, it's a song that's meant to remind us of what we've already seen in Genesis 3, that when humans decide they want control, when we grasp for power, when we decide we know better than God how to run the life he has given us, there is chaos, or as we've already said, there is crisis. This is why the world is such a mess. It's why there is so much death. It's why there's so much decay and so much destruction, because deep down inside of all of us, whether you realize it or not, is a desire to rule, to live with what St. Augustine referred to as the kingdom of self. It's to be the boss of my own life. You don't tell me what to do. I get to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with my money and my body and my sexuality and my calendar. This is a temptation on one level or another that is deep inside of every human heart. Everybody wants to rule the world. The problem is we make really bad rulers. We make really bad kings and it's important that you get that because despite what society tells you when you try to be the boss of your own life when you try to be the captain of your own ship it never works out for you the way that you think that it will because when you try to control the uncontrollable 
And by the way, there is a lot of uncontrollables in our life, including the fact that our heart is beating right now, and there's nothing we can do about that. When you try to control the uncontrollable, you become incredibly frustrated and anxious. On top of that, you become incredibly selfish and bitter because people, you know, would dare sin against you and your kingdom. And not only do you become bitter, you become boring. Some of the most boring people you will ever meet are self-centered people. They're boring because all they ever think about is me and my little life and my little tribe and my little world. And so when you try to rule the world, your life becomes miserable, it becomes mundane, and in an attempt to try to make your life bigger, it actually becomes much smaller. And in the end, rather than you ruling your desires, your desires end up ruling you. You become a slave to them. Rather than ruling your life, your life rules you and enslaves you, and eventually it drives you into the ground. And listen, because that is true, what I want you to see today is we need a better ruler. We need a true and better king. And the good news of the gospel is that we actually have one. And so with that, look back with me, Mark chapter 1. And just to set the context for you, the people of Israel are now living in a militarized zone that's being occupied by the Roman Empire. They're living in a world that is filled with suffering and pain and injustice because of their own sin, because they decided they knew how to rule their lives better than God. They're now living within a, in a world of failed expectations and sorrow, right, in this land of deep spiritual and emotional darkness. But it's in this world Jesus walks on the scene. And I actually want to get a running start before we get back to the passage Madeline just read. I want to start in verse 9. And I want you to look at this with me. Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So here is Jesus. And what Mark has just told us in chapter 1, verse 1, is that this Jesus is the Christ. That means he is the anointed royal king. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one that God himself promised in Genesis 3.15 would come and, and crush the head of the serpent. This is the one that Israel has been waiting for to come and rescue them and redeem them and do for them everything that they have been hoping for. And so the people of Israel, they're waiting for this Messiah. They're hoping for this Messiah. They're expecting big things from this Messiah. But he is not at all what they expected him to be. Rather than this Messiah being born into some wealthy royal family with power and prestige, this Messiah, rather than being some strong military leader who looked like Thor or, or whatever else, he was instead an unimpressive peasant from the village of Nazareth. To be from Nazareth would be like being from Corning or Leith. It's like there's, there's nothing wrong with those people. It's just it's not where you expect the hero of the world to arise from. Jesus is born in poverty to teenage parents, and he spent the first 30 years of his life in relative obscurity. He's not the kind of person that you would expect to come and rescue you. John MacArthur says it like this. For them, talking about Israel, they really believed the Messiah would come in glory and power. There would be pomp and circumstance. There would be a great cataclysmic events. There would be punishment of evildoers. They were looking for the music and the horses and the triumph, the wonder, the glory, the show, the publicity. They really expected a blazing display of power and glory and majesty and might as their Messiah established his kingdom. But it didn't 
happen that way. On December 6, 2022, the college football world was changed forever as Deion Sanders was hired as the head football coach at the University of Colorado. And I just want to tell you guys, I am on Deion Sanders' bandwagon. I, I, I bought a Buffalo's shirt uh, back in January. Just bought another one two weeks ago. Uh, I, I'm, I'm all about it. Watch both games. We're 2-0. and I'm going to enjoy it while we can. But look at this picture of Dion. Prime time. Neon Dion. That's right. When he showed up, he showed up big in Colorado. I mean, look at that. White cowboy hat because he's a good guy, right? The good guys always wear the white cowboy hat. He has a gold ch- uh, whistle. Y'all see that? He doesn't just have a whistle. Like, this is a coach that has a gold whistle. And he shows up with an entourage, and he's got the music and the swag, and it was hype city. And what did he keep saying? We coming. We coming, right? That's all he said. We, we coming. And as I thought about that, man, I thought, like, like, if I was Jesus, that's the way I would have done this in Mark 1. Like, that's the way I would have showed up. Like, white cowboy hat, maybe on a white horse. Right, music blaring, like chariots behind me, like soldiers, like how you like me now, like like that's what I would have done. But notice that rather than Jesus rolling up in style with some entourage and a big fanfare, of all of the ways he could have made his ministry debut, he chooses to make a splash, not by exalting himself as a mighty ruler, but by lowering himself into a muddy river. As a way of identifying with sinners he came to save, as a way of becoming one with the last, least, and lost, he asked his crazy cousin, John the Baptist, to baptize him. And then after coming out of the waters, the Spirit descends on him. The Father declares, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And look at this, verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels, angels attended to him. What is that all about? Like, 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 is the Holy Spirit directionally challenged? Like, why would he ever lead him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? I mean, is he just not good with directions? Was he heading someplace and got lost on the way? Some of you know I'm, I'm really bad with directions. Before GPS, I got lost on my first date with my wife. I got a group lost in Memphis one time. We got robbed on Crump Boulevard, true story. Like, like thank God for GPS, because I don't know how to get from one place to another. Like, is that the problem with the Spirit here? Like, the Spirit just doesn't know how to get where he needs to go, and somehow he accidentally leads Jesus into the wilderness? Well, no. Like, make no mistake about it, this is intentional. So what is the Spirit up to? Well, here's what you need to know. The reason the Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness is because the wilderness is the anti-Eden. See, Jesus came to undo everything that Adam and Eve had screwed up in the garden. And so the Spirit is intentionally here leading Jesus into the wilderness, into this place that was everything the Garden of Eden is not. I mean, think about it. In the Garden of Eden, you have fellowship, food, and peaceful animals. But in the wilderness, what do you have? Jesus is alone. There's no other humans with him. And there's no food. And there are wild animals everywhere. That's what it says right here in the text. Which, by the way, when this was written, Mark's Gospel, Christians were being thrown to wild animals to be devoured because of their allegiance to Christ. And the devil is there. Just as he was there in the garden tempting Adam and Eve, he's there in the wilderness to tempt Jesus. And, and we don't have time to go read this, but go look at Matthew's account and Luke's account later. How did the devil try to tempt Jesus? In the same way he tried to tempt 
Adam and Eve in the same way he tries to tempt you and me by getting him to question God's word. If you really are the son of God, if you really are loved by God, like he said that you are at your baptism, he would never lead you into the wilderness. He would never lead you into suffering. He would never cause you pain. He would never leave you in this place that is dangerous. And this is the same lie I would say that the enemy is trying to feed some of you even today. If God really cared about you, that prayer would not go unanswered. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be sick. If God really loved you, you wouldn't have got that diagnosis. If God really loved you, your marriage wouldn't have fallen apart, or that person wouldn't have betrayed you. You wouldn't be experiencing this pain or a hardship. Like that's what the devil tries to do, is to convince you you can't trust God because God clearly doesn't care for you. That's how he comes after Jesus. But Jesus doesn't buy it. He trusts the Father's love. He doesn't take the bait. He believes truth over lies. He comes out of the wilderness, exceeding everywhere that Adam and Eve have failed. He overcomes every temptation the devil throws at him. And then look at this in verse 14 and 15. These are the first words we have recorded of Christ in the Gospels. And in, in, in this, these words, he sums up his entire ministry. It says this in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And what is the good news of God? What is the gospel? You ready? Anybody want to know what the gospel is? Here it is. Verse 15. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God has come near, so repent and believe the good news. Now, there is a lot in there, but for our purposes today, here's what I want you to get for taking notes. Know this. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God more than he talked about anything else. He talked about it at the beginning of his ministry. He talked about it at the end of his ministry. And he talked about it a lot and taught on it a lot all throughout his ministry. And when you think of the kingdom of God, don't think of a palace, but rather think of paradise. Think of the Garden of Eden. Think of a place or people in a place that are flourishing under the rule and reign of God. Think of a place, when you think of the kingdom of God, where there is no war, where there is no crime, there is no betrayal, there is no hate, there is no relational breakdown, there is no infidelity, no cheating, no lying, no sickness, no disease or death. Everything is rightly ordered as it should be under the loving rule of God. It is a place, the prophet Isaiah said, where all sorrow and all sign will flee away and joy will overtake you. In other words, the kingdom of God is everything you could ever want and ever need. It is in the words of Jesus, the place where you experience abundant life, deep life, full life, everlasting life. And it's the life that was lost in the Garden of Eden, thanks to Adam and Eve's sin. But Jesus says now in Mark 1, I am dragging this kingdom, I'm dragging this future world back into this present world. And if you read the Gospels, what does this look like? What does it look like when the kingdom of God begins to break into this present world? Well, it looks like Jesus healing a leper and restoring him to the community. It looks like Jesus giving sight to the blind or proclaiming good news to the poor, setting captives free. Jesus says in Matthew twelve twenty eight that this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God is spreading. And you need to get this today because some of you, you look at the miracles in the Bible and you think the miracles are basically just Jesus doing these magic tricks to impress people. That's not what's going on here. Our, our youth group went to Harvest Baptist uh, several weeks ago, and they um, uh, spent time uh, listening to Sean Emery. He was an illusionist, performing these different magic tricks, like shoved a nail up his nose 
and like, you know, bring kids up on stage and be like, pick a card, any card. And then, of course, he could guess their card. It really was impressive. I, I watched it myself. But the whole point of his magic tricks was just to try to get your attention, to keep your attention, because he knows we struggle just to, to listen like we're doing right now. And so he's trying to keep your attention so that he can then present the gospel to you. And some people think like, that's what Jesus' miracles are. They're nothing more than just magic tricks to keep your attention. But that's not at all what Jesus says. Jesus says these are acts done in the power of the Spirit for the purpose of giving you a glimpse of what the kingdom of God is like. And if that's not good enough, it gets better because as you continue to read the gospel, what we quickly see is that when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus doesn't just want to heal you physically. More than that, he wants to heal you spiritually. He doesn't just want to heal your body. He wants to heal your entire soul. And there are many places we could look at this, but one example is, is, is if you just look at the very next chapter in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it's the last place I'll have you look. But I want you to see this with your own eyes because this is so important. This is, this is essential to the work that Christ came to do. In Mark 2, starting in verse 1, Jesus has been healing. He's been casting out demons. He's starting to gather a crowd. And we read the following. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, or get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, digging through it, and then lowered that mat the man was on, uh, or then lowered the mat the man was lying on. So think about all the work they've gone through just to get their paralyzed friend before Jesus. And so now here he is before Jesus in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I know you're all a bunch of really spiritual people in here, but just imagine for a moment being this paralyzed man. Would there not be a little bit of you that's disappointed that this is what he says to you? I I mean, imagine. This is the day before there's wheelchairs. Like you're dragging yourself around or, or you have to have other like people carry you. Most likely this man was not married. He didn't have kids. He didn't have a job. He didn't have money. He couldn't do all the stuff that he sees all of his friends doing. His quality of life is so incredibly low, it's hard for us to even fathom what it would have been like in the first century. And now, here he is before Jesus, the man who has the power to make him walk. But instead of Jesus healing his legs in this moment, the first thing he does is say, your sins are forgiven. To me, that seems a little insensitive after all the work they've gone through to get to Jesus. So what is going on here? Well, what Jesus understands is something that we all have to understand today if we're ever going to experience the life that God created us to experience. And here it is. Our biggest problem is not our suffering. Our biggest problem is our sin. Our biggest problem is not what the world or someone else has done to us, but it's what we have done to God. And if you're like, well, what have I done to God? Well, think about this. You didn't invite God into your world. He invited you into his world. You're eating his food. You're drinking his drink. You're breathing his air. And every time we do that without giving God glory and worship for that, we are ignoring him. And not only have we ignored God, we have rebelled against him. 
like Adam and Eve, we have all chosen at times in our life to be our own rulers, to do things our way rather than his way, to live for our glory rather than his glory. You know, just last night, I, um, every time we put our kids to bed, every night we, we put our kids to bed and we pray over them. And so I just finished praying over Nora and I'm about to walk out the room and she says to me, Dad, if Jesus was here and he was talking to you, would you do every single thing that he told you to do? And I thought about it for a moment, and here's my answer. No. And you know why I know that's true? Because I don't do everything he tells me to do right now. And and so I told her, I was like, you know, like, sweetheart, the reality is, even as a pastor, even as someone who's claimed to be a Christian for years, there are still times where I want to rule. I want to do what Jared Pitney wants to do. I know what is right, and I still choose to do what is wrong, and that is called sin. When we choose to do things our way rather than God's way, and listen, guys, that is our biggest problem. Our biggest problem, listen, your biggest problem right now is not a lack of money. Your biggest problem is not mean people on social media. Your biggest problem is not the Republicans or the Democrats. Your biggest problem is not inflation. Your biggest problem is not the education system. Your biggest problem is not that some coach didn't give your kid a chance to whatever. Like, like the biggest problem is not out there. The biggest problem is in here. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And our sin leads to death. Sin, guys, you have to get this, it kills. It kills your peace. It kills your joy. It kills your contentment. It kills your relationships, not just with one another, but ultimately it kills our relationship with God. And because Jesus knows this is true, though he will go on to heal this man's legs, he says, actually, I want to do something for you that's even better than that. I want to get even deeper than that. I want to do something even more lasting than that. I want to heal your heart. I want to forgive you of your sins so that you, sir, can walk with God, who is the source of all that is good and beautiful and true for all eternity. And this isn't just something that Jesus came to do for this paralytic man in Mark 2. It's something he came to do for you and for me. And how did Jesus do this? How did he provide a way for us to be forgiven of our sins? Well, he did something that nobody saw coming. Rather than this Messiah coming to crush the Roman Empire, which is what the Israelites thought would happen, Jesus was crucified by them. And I don't know what you know about crucifixion, but it was the most horrific way anybody could die, the most humiliating and excruciating way anybody could die. It was a death that was reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst. It was a bloody, drawn-out public spectacle that usually ended in death by either shock or asphyxiation. And this is the way that Jesus chose to die for you and me, to pay the penalty for our sins. The gospel tells us that Jesus came and he lived a perfect, sinless life that you could never live. He didn't just... He, he didn't just conquer Satan there in the wilderness. He, he, he conquered Satan all throughout his life. He never once fell into temptation. He lived a perfect, sinless life on your behalf, fulfilling the righteous requirement of God. He then went to the cross, and he died a death. We deserve to die for our sins. And then he rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin, conquering death, and conquering hell so that you now can know that just as Jesus experienced a death and a burial and a resurrection, you too can experience a death, burial, and and resurrection, which means you can now enter into the kingdom of God. You can one day experience a world. Think about this, guys, how good of news this is. You can one day experience a world where, in the words of C.S. Lewis, all sad things are going to come untrue. And the hardest days you've ever experienced, they're not going to be wasted 
They're just going to make eternity that much sweeter for you. This is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus came to bring us. And it's the good news that whether you realize it or not, that you need today. And if this would, and this is only going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, and I pray even right now that Holy Spirit, you would do this work in, in, in the hearts of each person here. If this gospel for some of you would finally go from just being in here to in here, God, it would change your life. Like it would give you a joy and a peace and a contentment and a fulfillment that you have been searching for in so much stuff, you will finally be able to have it here. Joni Erickson Tata was in an accident when she was 17. I think I've got a picture of her. There she is. And it was an accident that left her paralyzed from the neck down. And while she was still trying to come to terms with this horrible accident, she would go to church on a Sunday morning and try to find some hope. And one day while she was there, the priest asked everybody in the the room to kneel and pray, which, as you can imagine, presented a problem for her because she couldn't do that. And here's what she says about that experience. Think about this. She was 17 at the time. And she's gone on to write a lot of books. It has been phenomenal. Go, Go check out some of her stuff later. But here's what she says. With everyone kneeling, I certainly stood out. And I couldn't stop the tears. But notice what she says next, because she's not crying out of self-pity. Poor me. Sitting there, I was reminded that in heaven, I'll be free to jump up, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, The first thing I plan to do on the resurrection legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel at the feet of King Jesus. If the good news of the kingdom of God can provide that kind of hope for a 17-year-old girl with a severe spinal cord injury, imagine what it could do for you if you truly begin to believe that this isn't just a story. It is the story. Imagine what could happen if you stop trying to anxiously and feverishly rule your own life. To manage and control everybody and everything around you. If you stop trying to do things your way and instead you just trusted that Jesus is the true and better way. And this is the invitation today. It's the invitation from Jesus in Mark 1. He says, repent. And believe the good news of the kingdom. To repent just literally means to turn from trusting in yourself to trusting in Christ. To submit to him not just your Sunday, but your everyday. To submit to him not just what you do in public, but also what you're doing in private. For some of you, if you can be honest today, Jesus is not the king of your life. He's not. For some of you, Jesus is not your Lord. He's your accessory. He's your butler that you ring every now and then whenever there's nowhere else to go to come and do for you whatever you need to make your life more comfortable, to maximize your potential. For some of you, rather than reorienting all of your life around Christ, you're just kind of trying to live like everybody else in the world and then shove a little bit of Jesus into the nooks and crannies. Rather than giving Jesus your first fruits, 
You're giving him your leftovers. I'll see what I have at the end of the month, and I'll try to give you what I can. And I just want to say to you, with all the love in my heart, please hear me, and we're almost done. Jesus is either going to come as Lord, or he's not going to come at all. You will not have Jesus as your Savior if you will not take Jesus as your Lord. He will not be your Messiah if you do not want him to be a king. We live in a world right now, I think this is secular culture to a T, where we want the kingdom without the king. Everybody in here wants the good life. Everybody in here wants joy and prosperity and peace and contentment and fulfillment. We just want to get those things apart from Jesus. And it's just not going to happen. You know, I love that scene in Mark 1 or right after Jesus proclaims the kingdom. And you can go and read it later. He calls his very first disciples to follow him. And because they recognize who Jesus is as the king and as the Lord, it says in in chapter 1, verse 18, at once they dropped their nets and followed him. Why is that significant? Because that was their career. That was their everything. They were willing to drop their job, to drop their money, to drop their vocation, to drop their schedule, to drop their identity, and to drop their sense of security in the things of the world. And guys, listen, that's what it means to be a Christian. Have you done this? Have you come to a place where you have dropped the things of the world and with open hands you have received the free gift of salvation that Christ has come to offer you? To be a Christian in the words of Jesus himself in Matthew 6 is this. It is to seek first the kingdom of God. And it is a trust that if you will do that, Jesus says, everything you could ever need, everything you could ever need will be given to you. I'm going to invite our band to come forward. And as I do, I want to pray over us. And if you have never submitted your life to Jesus as king, I pray that you would do that right now. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Stop holding on to your religion. Stop holding on to mom and dad's faith. Stop holding on to what your friends think about you or your family thinks about you or Stop holding on to your idea of how you think you're going to experience the good life. Drop those things. Release those things. And cling to Jesus. Father, I thank you for sending your son to come and accomplish for us everything we could not accomplish for ourselves. And I pray that right now through your Holy Spirit, as we sing these final songs and take communion together, that you would drive the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God deeper into our hearts. I pray there'd be nobody here today that leaves without knowing you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And for those who've already made that decision, I pray that this good news truly right now would feel not just like true news, but like good news. And that it would produce in us a joy and a peace and a life and a love all afresh, all over again. And from out of that place, we would sing, we would worship, and we would live for your glory. And to Christ, I pray and I ask these things. Amen.